All right, good morning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, that is where we will end up today. Uh, But before we get to John chapter 11, I want to set up this passage for us. Now, I don't know where you are today. I would imagine that there's some people in here who are on top of the world. Uh, Everything seems to be going well for you in your life right now. Maybe your job uh, is great. Maybe you just got a new job that you're excited about. Uh, Your family relationships are are wonderful. Your spiritual life is uh, on point, and you're really excited about life. Or maybe you're here today, and you're kind of like in the middle. Uh, Life is okay, right? It could be better, uh, but no real complaints. Uh, Nothing really exciting, but no real tragedies going on either. Or maybe you're here today, and you feel like the bottom has fallen out. Maybe you're facing the loss of a job, breakdown of a family relationship or other relationship. Maybe it's a medical diagnosis, right? Uh, Maybe it is diabetes. Maybe it is early onset dementia. Maybe it is cancer. If you've lived long enough, you've seen tragedy, uh, great times of darkness where you feel like you have no hope uncertainty, experience setbacks, where times where you you feel like it couldn't get worse, and then it does. It gets worse. If you're young, I don't want to discourage you. You'll probably experience those times at some point in your life because we live in a fallen world. It is those times when we need, we need to know who the God is that we serve. And we need to understand who this God is that we are praying to. I want to start with an illustration, and I want you to stay with me because it's going to be an outrageous one here. But Houston Astros had a pretty good season last year. Let's say that the Houston Astros invited Hope Church to play a baseball game against them at Minute Maid Park. Okay? Stick with me. Okay? And they were going to play seriously. They were going to have their starters out there, and they were, they were going to play like it was Game 7 of the World Series. Now let's further say that they said the stipulation is this, for hope you can only send from your church those ages 7 to 17 to play in this game, okay? We're going to do our starters, but you can only start those kids who are 7 to 17. And then they further said this, also, we're going to play with our normal hands, but you guys, if you are... If you catch with your left and throw with your right, you have to catch with your right, throw with your left. If you bat right-handed, you have to bat left-handed. Okay? And then let's further say this, that we would absolutely annihilate the Houston Astros in their home field. Now, you laugh because no doubt you're thinking, impossible. That is impossible. Now, the reason I paint this picture is to make a point. And the point is this, from the opening to the closing chapters of the Bible, we see stories loaded with impossible situations, impossible situations. And we see a God who loves to stack the odds against himself. We have a God who loves to stack the odds against himself. Over and over, we see God take a difficult situation, make it impossible, and then overcome it. Let me give you a few examples before we get to John chapter 11. Let's start at the very beginning in uh, the creation story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
What did God use to create the heavens and the earth? You can participate. What did God use? Nothing. Okay, I laugh because we say that. We say nothing as if we understand that, right? We say it as as if we understand it. God didn't go down to the cosmic Home Depot, right, and get a bunch of big spheres, you know, some gaseous ones and some solid rock ones. No. He started with nothing, with emptiness, with blackness. If you think this is, if you think that, if you, if you don't understand it, go home this afternoon, okay? Stand out in your backyard, that deck that you've always wanted. Just stand there. Make sure your neighbors aren't watching, okay? But just stand there and say, let there be a deck and see what happens, right? Nothing's going to happen. God started with nothing. He stacks the odds against himself. Moving along in the Bible, we come to the story of Abraham. Uh, God calls Abraham at the tender age of 75 years old. Abraham has been married to his wife for probably over 50 years. They've been trying to have a child. They have not been able to have a child. God comes to him and says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And Abraham's like, are you serious? Now at the age of 75, I'm going to have a son? And God's like, oh, no, don't be silly. Not for another 25 years. I'm just telling you right now that you're going to have a son. I'm going to wait till your wife is 90 years old and her her womb is good and dead and you're going to have a son. God taking a difficult situation, making it impossible. Moving along in the Bible, we have the story of the Exodus, right? Children of Israel have just come out of the land of Egypt, 400 years in slavery. And what happens? They get to this impassable body of water. And who comes behind them? the Egyptian army. And they start to freak out. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Moses says, just calm down and see the salvation of the Lord. And, of course, God provides a way, dry land right through the midst of the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army is wiped out. When we get to the book of Judges, we have the story of Gideon against the host of Midian. Midian has been oppressing uh, the Israelites for years and years and years, And God calls Midian, and he says, you're going to go up against this massive army, this army that could blow you out, but we need to talk about your army right now. And Gideon's like, yes, we do, because we only have 32,000. And God's like, yeah, that's the problem. We need less. Wait, did I hear you right, God? No, you mean we need more. No, we need less. And so God has him do something, reduces it down to 10,000. And Gideon's like, now we're good? And God's like, no, not even close do something else, gets it down to 300, and God says, now we're ready to go. God takes a difficult situation, makes it impossible. That war strategy is crazy, unless you're God, and you know what you're doing, and you have a plan. One of my favorite stories is in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, story of a king, uh, Jehoshaphat, in uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. He's sitting there minding his own business one day, and three nations come up against him, three nations stronger than his army. And he starts to freak out. If you read the passage, he starts to freak out, and all the people in Israel are, are, are scared. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? He does the only thing he can do. He goes and he prays to God. And this is just a portion of the prayer. I love, I love, I love this, because they're going to get annihilated and here's what he says in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. O Lord our God, 
Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. People, God loves that prayer. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And once again, God's strategy, his war strategy is is amazing. He says, get the worship team and put them out on the front line, right? Anita, you're up on the front line. This is it, right? And he says, you just start praising me. You start praising me, and that's what they do. And those three nations just rise up against each other and kill all each other off. Israel never fires a shot, so to speak. They never lift a spear. They never shoot an arrow. They just go in and, and spend three days gathering all of the spoil. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There's several other stories. We're going to skip all the way to the end uh, of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Um, the first time I read this story, I literally laughed out loud uh, just because it's so amazing how it ends. Uh, uh, Satan has been bound for a thousand years And the Revelation 20, verse 7 says this, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand on the sea, and they march up over the broad plain of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You can just see this, right? They're getting larger and larger, and the people of God are, are probably shielding themselves. And, and this is going to be a, a, a gruesome battle. And then it ends by saying this, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I love that, right? Israel's like, the people of God are like hiding themselves, and then they look up, and all they see is ash going up from incinerated, incinerated enemies of God. Beloved, those, that is the God that we serve. That is the God that we pray to, a God who loves to stack the odds against himself. This brings us to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is one of 21 chapters in the book of John. And like every other book in the Bible, John has a purpose. Now, most uh, books don't tell you what the purpose is, but John does tell us what the purpose is. In John chapter 20, at the end of the book, in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, It says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of this book and every chapter, including the story that we're going to read today, and we're going to see that word believe a lot in there, is so that you would believe and have life in Jesus' name. You would believe and have life in Jesus' name. If it's new belief, that's what it's to create. If, it's, if you're already a believer, it's to strengthen that belief. And what kind of life are we talking about? We're talking about abundant life. When Greg asked me to preach, he said that the church was going to be embarking on 40 days of prayer. If we're engaging in prayer, then we need to know who this God is that we are praying to, because he is the one who provides abundant life. Not saying an easy life, right? Not promising an easy life, but an abundant life, a rewarding life. 
So the purpose of this story in John chapter 11 is that you and I would believe. And if you're here today and you are an unbeliever, the purpose of this story is to, uh, to produce faith in you, to see faith produced in you, that you would see the power of God, the love of God, and that you would believe in him and then have life in his name. And if you are a believer here, then the purpose of the story is that you would better understand who God is and what he is capable of. And as a result, live a life filled with his power. So let's look at this uh, passage today. John chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1. So I want to encourage you to get there right now. And we're going to read a good portion of it, but we're going to be skipping around uh, a little bit. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointments and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And the implication is, come quickly, right? Come come quickly, he's, he's ill. Verse 4, but when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he dropped everything he was doing, rushed to Bethany, and healed him. Right? Isn't that what it says? Isn't that what it should say? I mean, it it says, now Jesus loved them, therefore, he waited. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, think of an ER doctor who is skilled, right, at his practice, who who saves 95% of his patients coming in with the worst injuries. And one day he's getting ready for work and his son goes off to school and is in an accident about a hundred yards down the road, and the, the neighbor comes and runs and runs to his house and says, Your son was just in a major accident. He he's close to death. You need to come quickly. And the doctor says, I love my son very much. Let me finish my breakfast, take a shower, get dressed, and I'll be right there. No, no, that's not the answer. You would drop everything and you would come. This makes no sense unless you are God and you know what you're doing and you have a plan. And Jesus is God and he knows what he's doing and he has a plan. Once again, verse 4 says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Jesus is poised to do something astounding, something amazing. Jesus, finally, uh, the passage once again, says this. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So Jesus finally gets down to Bethany, and we'll pick up in verse 17. Verse 17 says this. Now Lazarus, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And I'll spare you the uh, gory details of what happens to the body. I used to be in the medical field. Um, and I researched this. It's, it's pretty gruesome what happens to the body after four days. Um, I will save that for you, but this is why in verse 39, 
Martha says, when Jesus says, uh, roll the, the stone away, Martha says, by this time there's going to be an odor, right? Or as the King James says, by this time he stinketh, okay? Um, so uh, Jesus gets there. He's been dead for four days. Uh, verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Before we get to verse 21, I want you to feel, I want you to feel the pain that Martha is going through right now as we read this. She's just lost her brother whom she loves, and she is crushed, crushed. And verse 21 says this, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Here's what she's saying. I'm having a hard time understanding this. I'm having a hard time understanding this. You've healed literally hundreds of people, many of whom you didn't even know. This is someone that you love. You spent time at our house. Lord, why didn't you come earlier? You can feel those raw emotions. And let's be honest, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like, where are you, God? You read the Psalms and you see that, right? How long, oh Lord, how long? How long, where are you? I cry out to you, where are you? We called to you, Jesus, you didn't come. My brother's dead. Well, she said, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And then she immediately corrects herself and says this in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It's great faith. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's great theology, right? That is great theology. I know that he's, I know that he's going to rise again on the last day at the resurrection at the last day. Here's what she's saying. I know, I know, I know. I know there's going to be a resurrection, but I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait. I miss my brother. I miss his laughter. I, I miss his presence. I miss him. Verse 25 contains what I think is one of the most amazing statements in the Bible when you think of the finality of death, right? And most of us have probably experienced someone dying in our lives that we cared about, and we don't get to hear their voice anymore. We don't get to see them anymore. Verse 25, once again, she's just like, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection of life. That resurrection that you're talking about, I am responsible for that. Brothers and sisters, if that does not send shivers down your spine, I don't know what will, right? Martha's brother has just died. What does she need? What does she need? She's not looking for someone to come and put their arm around her and say, there, there, it, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. No, you don't understand the relationship that we had. No, she is desperate. She needs someone who can raise the dead 
And she just happens to be in his very presence right there. I love that so much. What do you need? I need someone who can raise the dead. I'm the one who can raise the dead. Once again, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes, there's our theme, right, for the book of John. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That is the key question, right? That's the question that he asked Martha back then. That's the question that he asks you and I today. Do you believe this? And he's probably thinking, you're about to, right? You're about to. That's the whole purpose. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's skip down to verse 32, uh, where Jesus, where Mary comes out to meet Jesus. Verse 32, now when Mary came uh, to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same thing that Martha said. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews that had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. I love seeing the humanity of Jesus just shining forth right here, right? This isn't Jesus conjuring up some uh, tears, right? i got to make this look real. No, this is Jesus genuinely moved. He loved Lazarus. And they say that in verse 36, the Jews said to see how he loved him. Verse 37, but some said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And the answer is absolutely, Right? Absolutely, but Jesus had a different plan in mind. Verse 38, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, (laughs) Um, by this time, There's going to be an odor. He's been dead four days. Are you prepared for us to open this up? Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, He's praying to his father, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may, what? Believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, right? I want you to think about how outrageous this command is, okay? You don't go to a funeral and say this, right? So the person in the casket, hey, come out. You don't say that. It's crazy. Unless you're God, you know what you're doing, and you have a plan. And this is exactly what happens. Jesus cries out, Lazarus, come out. Come out. And verse 44 says this, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, 
unbind him and let him go. This is a great example of God stacking the odds against himself. It would have been great, right, if Jesus went and healed Lazarus when he was on the verge of death, right? I mean, he's close to death. That would have been great. But how much greater is it, right? I mean, he is dead. He is rotting. And Jesus comes and raises him from the dead. What a belief booster. Jesus wants them to believe in God. Jesus wants them to see the glory of God. God had a better plan, right? Mary and Martha knew how they wanted it to end. God had a better plan. And many times, let's be honest, right? We think that we know better than God, right? We think that we know better than God. And we are ready, very ready, to offer God our counsel, right? God, come here. Let me me tell you how I think this should go, right? We're ready to offer God counsel. We want what we want, but God knows what is best for us. And the best thing was to let Lazarus die so that they would see the glory of God. All right, so what? So what? How does this apply to us today? Does this mean that God is going to raise your loved ones from the dead? Probably not, right? Probably not. This is what it means. What are you struggling with today? What are you struggling with today? What is your deepest need? What is your deepest need? This is where, as you look through the Bible, you see all these names of God, right? The way I look at it is is you have those those big overarching themes about God, that he's omniscient, that he's all-powerful, right? Uh, That he's everywhere present, but those are kind of transcendent God. I mean, it's just he's out there. And then people put those to the test, and they say, oh, no, I know him. I know him as the God who heals, right? I know him as the God who provides. So what do you need today? Maybe you're in an oppressive situation at work. Right? And, and you just feel like uh, uh, the boss is coming down on you and singling you out. You need the God who sees, right? You need the God who sees and who can do something about your situation. Or maybe you're struggling financially today. You don't know how you're going to pay the bills, right? I mean, they're coming in, the medical bills that are there, the, the mortgage, the rent, or whatever it is, and you don't know how you're going to pay it. What do you need? You need the God who provides, right? You need the God who provides. You need the God who owns everything. Or maybe you're struggling mentally or emotionally today. And maybe you do. You cry yourself to sleep every night. A psalmist did that. He said, I drench drench my, my pillow with my tears every night. And maybe that's how you go to sleep every night, just crying. Seems like life is just getting worse and worse. You're filled with anxiety. You're filled, you're filled with fear. Who do you need? You need the God who is the wonderful counselor, right? The mighty God, the prince of peace, the one who can bring true comfort, the one who can bring true peace, the one who can bring true hope to you. Or maybe you feel lost, right? Don't know which way is up. You need direction. Maybe you need the God who is your shepherd, right? the God who is your shepherd, who can lead you, who can guide you, who can protect you, who can even prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. 
Or maybe you're sick today physically or mentally, and you need the God who heals. Or maybe you're just spiritually hungry, right? Spiritually hungry. You're in a spiritual funk, maybe. Um, You've fallen from the place that you were once. You really desire to know God. Maybe you've uh, abandoned your first love, right? And you you have that hunger for God, that thirst for God, that desire to know God in a deeper way. So maybe you need the God who is the bread of life, right? Or the God who provides living water, who can satisfy your deepest spiritual hunger, your deepest spiritual thirst. Or maybe you're just plain sinful, right? Maybe you're just plain sinful, walking away from God, following the course of this world, the prince and power of the air. Maybe it's the fact is that you don't even know God. You don't even know God, and you think to yourself, you don't know the things I've done. You don't know, I'm, I'm too far gone. I am too far gone. And what you need is a true righteousness, right? A true righteousness, a true right standing with God. I love Jeremiah 23, 6. It says this, in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. And this is what we all need, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We all have a sin problem, and that sin separates us from a holy God. But I'm here to say that nothing, nothing that you have ever done or will do is too much for God to overcome. Nothing that you have ever done or will do is too much for God to overcome with his righteousness. Because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become in him the righteousness of God. Nothing is too difficult for God. Your sin is not too difficult for God to overcome. So let me close by saying this. Why does God stack the odds against himself, right? I mean, why does he take hard situations, make them more difficult, and then sometimes make them impossible? Why does he do that? Now listen to what I'm going to say, okay, because you're going to be like, okay, you're going to gasp. God does it because God is full of himself. God is full of himself, right? Now, when I say that, you're like, can you say that? Yes, I can. Because every time we hear it right, it's said in a negative context. You know, Jason is full of himself, you know, right? But God is full of himself, right? I mean, he has to be, right? Isaiah 48, 11 says this, for my own sake, for my own sake. He says it twice. I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And Jeremiah twenty or Jeremiah nine twenty three and twenty four says this. Thus says the Lord: Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom; let not the mighty man boast in his might; let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this: 
that he understands and knows me, right? Me. God is saying, it's all about me. And judges, going back to the story of Gideon, why did God reduce his army down to 300? He said, lest Israel think that they did it in their own power. No, I'm not going to share that glory with them. It's mine. And why did Jesus do this miracle? So that God would be glorified. Ultimately, you realize that it's not about you and me, right? It's about God. Everything points to him. He points to himself. Why would he point to anyone else? Could you imagine God saying this? You think I'm rich, you should see her, right? If you need provision, you should go to her, right? That's crazy, right? Or God saying, you think I'm strong, you should see him. You want protection, that's where you go to. That's absurd, right? I'm the one that you go to, right? You think I'm wise, (laughs) you haven't heard her wisdom, all right? That's where you should go. No. God is the ultimate source of wisdom. God is the ultimate source of power. God is the ultimate source of wealth and provision. And God wants what is best for you and me. And what is best for you and me? God, right? God. That's what is best. What is heaven? Heaven is not the streets of gold, right? That's part of it. It's not the absence of sickness, right? That's part of it. It's not every tear being wiped away. That's part of it. Heaven is heaven because God is there, right? Heaven is heaven because God is there. That's what we long for. That's what we want. And so the next time that you feel like your back is against the wall where you're facing an impossible situation, reach out to the God who stacks the odds against himself who can overcome every obstacle in your life. Even if it doesn't turn out the way that you like it to or think it should, trust him because the Bible says that he is working all things together for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We forget this so often. We fret, we stress we become anxious, um, we forget. And so I pray that you would remind us again of who you are, what you have done, what you are capable of doing, and that nothing is impossible. And that when this life is over, you will take us home to be with you, and we will be with you forever and ever. And we will behold your power, your glory, your beauty forever. We thank you for this. Empower us today. Produce faith in us. Lord, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.